You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You can find all your sales and rental needs for equipment at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You can find leaders and legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Harold Holzer. Without a doubt, one of the country's best-selling historians, a leading authority, if not the leading authority on Abraham Lincoln, and a go-to for members of the media when it comes to the intersection of politics, press, people, and history. He served as co-chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission, appointed to the commission by President Bill Clinton. Harold also received the National Humanities Medal from President George W. Bush in 2008. And in 2013, he wrote an essay on Lincoln for the official program at the re-inauguration of President Barack Obama. Are you sensing a pattern, a presidential pattern here? He has appeared on just about every major TV network, and his C-SPAN history lectures are terrific. He's written a number of well-received books on Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War era. If you love that period in American history as much as I do, Mr. Holzer's books are absolutely essential reading. Harold is currently the director of the Roosevelt House Public Policy Institute and the author of a new book, which we're going to discuss today, among other things. It's getting substantial praise. You can find it on Amazon. Matter of fact, we'll put a link uh, to the book on our podcast posting. And the book is called The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. Thank you, sir, for joining us on the podcast, being hosted in the state where Lincoln became a man. At least that's what us Hoosiers like to tell ourselves. Thank you, sir. Uh, my pleasure. Um, it's good to be with you from the state where Lincoln became a presidential, serious presidential aspirant, New York. So Cooper not Union. Be, yeah, not to be too competitive, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's so much to discuss. I want to talk about your book uh, a big part of the time. Uh, it's certainly in the news in more ways than one and leave a little bit of time for some Lincoln discussion. But let's jump right into the book. The book is called The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media from the Founding Fathers to Fake News. So let's not uh, bury the lead, as they say. Okay. <laughs> uh, I do PR for a living. You used to do PR for a living. We both do a lot of writing. So if I said Donald Trump is the single biggest media hater, media suppressor, and most aggressive president in American history towards 
the media, you would say? I would say, much as I'd love to agree, no, <laughs> it's not true. Um, he is, uh, you know, all talk and no action, fortunately for the uh, First Amendment and for the press. Uh, he is the most insidious um, attacker of the press verbally, but he pales in comparison to um, John Adams and Abraham Lincoln and Woodrow Wilson and uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the measures he's taken to actually suppress the media. Um, and in terms of his anger with the press, he's probably at, on a par with John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, maybe even George Washington. Um, and so it's part of a pattern. He's the latest. But in terms of suppression, I don't think he's caught on to how we do that yet. So, no. So who would you rank? Who would you put on the Mount Rushmore of, of press media suppressors? Well, one of them is already on Mount Rushmore, and that's Abraham Lincoln. Uh, for reasons he thought were valid, <clears throat> in fact, the big reason was saving the Constitution. He abrogated the Constitution in, in a sense by declaring that he had a war power uh, that gave him in the right to curtail freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And the way that manifested over the four years of his presidency was that two more than 200 newspapers were shut down by the State Department, the War Department, the military, uh, the courts, some courts. And uh, editors were taken from their offices and put in military prisons in federal forts. Uh, we've never seen anything like that before. It happened again to a smaller extent during World War I, but Lincoln cracked down on dissent, actually putting bodies behind bars like nobody ever had or ever hopefully ever will. You've written extensively about Lincoln and the press. And one of the things that I learned through your writings is that Lincoln was a newspaper owner. Yeah, well, he was always deeply interested in the press, a subscriber, a distributor when he was a village postmaster in uh, New Salem, Illinois, uh, a reader even as a boy in Indiana, reading the St. Louis newspapers by the fireside as, as avidly as he read books, including the Bible. But yes, in 1859, uh, the year before the presidential election, he found out that a German language newspaper, which had tried relocating from Southern Illinois to his, the capital of Springfield, where he lived, had gotten into some financial problems, bad debts, and the, the editor's printing press had been seized. Hard to do a newspaper without your own printing press. So Lincoln and he made a deal, and the deal was Lincoln would advance $500, which was a lot of money in those days, to get the newspaper out of Hawk, and Lincoln would be the, the sole owner of a newspaper he couldn't read, by the way, because he had, much as he had tried to learn German, um, he, he never quite caught on. He knew a few words, but that's all. And why German? Because Germans were moving into Illinois uh, in huge numbers, into Indiana, and uh, swing states were possibly tiltable to the Republicans because of this new influx of overwhelmingly pro-Republican anti-slavery voters. And the deal was it, 
Go ahead. Is this where we sh- is this where we should mention? Let's see if I could say it right. General Schimmelfenning. Schimmelfenning. John Y. Si- the late John Y. Simon's favorite general, General <laughs> Schimmelfenning. Well, that's another story. We can get to political generals for sure. But so Lincoln, the idea was if this news, as long as this newspaper never varied in its opinions from the Republican platform, it could go on. And at the end of 1860, the editor could reclaim the press and be the sole owner. <clears throat> All it took was loyalty to the Republicans. And that's the deal they made. And that's the deal Lincoln kept. So that's one member of the Mount Rushmore. Right. Washington, you want to do him? Yes, sir. Well, Washington had a charmed existence for the first three years of his presidency. He was used to being to being treated like a national icon, and generally he was. But um, in the third year of his presidency, his own Secretary of State, Thomas Jefferson, engineered a it so that a anti-federalist editor from New York would relocate to the capital of Philadelphia and launch what was essentially an anti-George Washington paper. And for the next five years, this newspaper and then a subsequently created anti-federalist newspaper published by Benjamin Franklin's grandson, I should add, just did nothing but, well, it did other things, but relentlessly attacked George Washington to the point where at one cabinet meeting, he threw it to the floor and jumped up and down on it <laughs> boots and Jefferson professed to be shocked, but he had brought the paper in. He not only encouraged the editor to relocate, he gave the editor a job in the State Department so that he would have enough money to create the paper. So it, it's an astonishing thing, but uh, Washington was furious about the press. Now, in those days, you didn't go, you didn't hold televised news conferences and call the press the enemies of the people. It was a little more gentlemanly. And of course, we didn't have the media to do so. But Washington made it clear in his dealings with other editors, with other political leaders, with military people, that he was deeply insulted, wounded, and that he thought that this kind of journalism was the enemy of the Union, that it was giving the country a bad name in Europe and uh, encouraging disloyalty, undermining foreign policy. And with his famous farewell message, in 1796, with which he retreated back to public life. He made it clear in one of the drafts of that message, subsequently deleted as too self-pitying, that he wasn't leaving just because he wanted to show a two-term example, didn't want dictatorships. He did it because he was sick of the malicious fake news. He didn't put it that way, but he just about put it that way. Was the self-pitying deleted by Hamilton? Yes. Talk about trusting the U.S. post office. He sent it by mail to Hamilton Hamilton to edit it, and Hamilton sent it back by mail (laughs) without insurance, I guess. We always say things are worse now than ever. Politics is more hateful now than ever. The media is different now than ever. But one of the things that come through with your book and some of the other things that I've read about your book is, is that it was pretty darn brutal back then, especially in the 19th century. Yes. So I think we're spoiled by uh, generations of uh, supposedly uh, straight arrow reporting. But in the 19th century, the, the press tradition was entirely partisan. Newspapers were part of political party operations. 
undisguisedly, I mean, boastfully, Republican papers supported only Republicans and made their news stories tilted toward the Republicans. Democratic newspapers did the same thing for Democrats. And when the leaders they supported won the White House, those newspapers were rewarded. They became advisors to the president. I mean, we all say, how dare the president call Sean Hannity to discuss policy? Well, Andrew Jackson not only called on the editors whom he liked, he invited them to Washington. He made one of them postmaster general. He made another controller of the currency. He, uh, he had others uh, in and out of the White House as speechwriters and policymakers writing his veto messages. This is actually part of an American tradition. We just don't admit it as openly as we did before. That's a perfect transition to my next question because I had written this down earlier. Um, several months ago, I wrote, I wrote, I read a book by David and Gene Heidler called The Rise of Andrew Jackson. It was terrific. They've actually have come on my podcast. I've interviewed them. I haven't posted it yet. They were terrific guests. But their book on Andrew Jackson is that they devote a considerable amount of, of attention to the rise of newspapers in kind of the early national Jacksonian period and how important they were. Do you get the sense in your research that that's, that is the same turning point? You agree with them that that era is really where the newspapers started to grow and influence both inside an administration and out? Well, I, I don't question. It's a very good book, by the way. I agree with you. I wish I'd had it in front of me when I was writing my book because it's really useful. They did great research. They write well. Um, yes, I think the, the 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 reason why the papers became, you know, exponentially more important in the Jacksonian era was not only because Jackson was an inveterate newspaper reader, uh, consumer, and uh, um, utilizer of journalists in his cause, but because of technology. So I think you know Washington, Adams, Jefferson, equally devoted to the partisan press. But newspapers were kind of hand-cranked operations at the, in those days, reaching not that many people, published once or twice a week. With Jackson and the, and the age of the steam press, papers could be reproduced in the, in the, in the tens of thousands. And James Gordon Bennett, a, a political journalist whom Jackson didn't recognize for how useful he could be. It's one of the ones he didn't get. Uh, Bennett was a Scotsman who wanted... Jackson to be his patron. Jackson turned it, but he still became a pro-democratic editor, but he eventually founded the most uh, popular and influential newspaper in the country, the New York Herald, uh, which up through and past the Lincoln era was extremely important. Yes, so J I think Jackson's was not only the fact that he cared about the press, in which he was not unique, in which devotion he was not unique, but just technology. Technology makes newspapers more available. Were they less important in the Adams and Jefferson era? No, it's just that each copy was read by 40 or 50 people because they passed it around. And public education was starting to change and more people were getting literate. I'm assuming that, that, that back then there were probably more young people who could read and would read the paper as opposed to older folks, whereas now that may be reversed in terms right. of actual paper. I was amazed when I wrote about the colonial era that there were more young people proportionately in the colonial era, Washington, Adams, Jefferson, than at any time in the country, maybe until, you know, post-World War II baby booms. So there's a lot of people under 25 years old. And yes, in urban areas, they had a greater chance to read. In rural areas, maybe not so much. Maybe it was this, the, 
sins by omission of the fathers being passed on <laughs> to the children. I would, I would, I would, I have to go back and read their chapter, but I, I would say technology played a huge role in it, as did politics. Jackson understood the power of the press, the power of communication, the growing power of transportation, even though he didn't favor building better roads and canals and uh, bridges, that he didn't think the feds should be involved in that. He and his supporters did believe there should be a network of Andrew Jackson newspapers around the country. And they did what they could to create what amounted to the first uh, wire service in the, in the country before there were wires, uh, before there was a telegraph, and uh, um, created an openly partisan ring uh, of, of pro-democratic newspapers, which was extremely clever of them to create. And forgive me, we are unabashed fans of Andrew Jackson on the Leaders and Legends podcast, so much so that I named my son after him 19 years ago. If So I'm going to telegraph what I think should be the answer by asking this question, but feel free to answer as you okay. like. If you could choose any past president to have a Twitter account, whom would you choose? Wow. So you mean a, a president from a previous century? To get his well, you know, I, I, I'm an unabashed fan of Abraham Lincoln. That's my man. So, considering how brilliantly he communicates and with what brevity he communicates, and aside from cursing, Jackson is not known as a <laughs> as a person who spoke, you know, whose speeches and written statements were brief. I would choose Lincoln. You know, act of the people, by the people, for the people would be a cool message to advance the Gettysburg Address. I think you, he'd be great at it. You you wouldn't want to read Andrew Jackson threatening to shoot Henry Clay or hang John C. Calhoun on Twitter? That would be, you know, that's catnip for the press. Yep. Um, no, there are presidents who would be great at it and presidents. One thing is certain, and I, this is another thread. I think you asked me 40 minutes ago what the lead was, right? We did our PR PR professionals, what's the lead? So the one of the leads is for sure what's what's old is new again, right? This has been going on. The other lead is that to my uh, point of view, and I didn't have Jackson in this equation originally, but certainly would put him in based on the proliferation of newspapers in his time and his recognition of their power, that the presidents who have been the best communicators are those who recognized and used the newest communications technologies available to get around the press. So by the end of his administration, when Abraham Lincoln was traveling with the Union Army in Virginia, he was sending dispatches to the War Department about the progress of Grant's army that were being published verbatim in the front page of, on the front page of every newspaper in the country. He was not only the commander-in-chief at the end of the war, he was the correspondent-in-chief, the communicator-in-chief. So that's one. Um, Franklin Roosevelt, who held 998 news conferences during his three terms in one month in the White House and outside of the White House in Hyde Park and Warm Springs, overseas on battleships. He did have a press conference or two on a battleship. Um, he also found a way to circumvent the press. And that was the fireside chat, 28, just 28. And if you're old enough to have parents who lived through that, 
or grandparents, uh, to them it was like he was on the radio as often as Jack Benny or Burns and Allen. He was a presence. His voice was part of their culture in their living rooms, and that was a first. Plus, Roosevelt had a third element, and that is the press protected him in a certain way. But we'll, we can get back to that. With his disability, they wouldn't yeah. show pictures. They wouldn't, uh, I think the, uh, the one thing that I had read that they were very careful was is the fact that he couldn't get in and out of a car or that sort of right. thing, and they censored that themselves. It was self-censored up to a point. And then when a new generation of journalists got there in World War II, the press office ordered no no, no pictures from handheld cameras, no candid pictures. Everything had to be posed. And if the photographer defied them, uh, his, his film could be seized or was seized. I don't know if it could be. But they, the argument was, we don't want to give aid and comfort to the enemy mm -hmm. to suggest that the president is weak. But um, just two more presidents on this high-tech uh, theme. John F. Kennedy did the same thing. Um, with the televised news conference, a whole new thing, live televised news conferences from a beautiful theater in the State Department. He went around the press with those, but they loved it because they got TV time when they asked questions. And then Barack Obama, to some degree, uh, introduced the White House website and uh, uh, Donald Trump, whatever you say about his temperament or his policies, he is an absolutely brilliant communicator. Not only does he use his, tw his Twitter account constantly, but the so-called professional journalists use his tweets to create the storyline for at least half of every day. He creates the news cycle in the same way that the Associated Press uh, used to create the news cycle. Half of the day is spent reacting to his tweets. So he's pretty ingenious at that. And he's been doing it since he was a real estate man. I tracked, in my book, I tracked his very first tweet which was which he probably didn't type himself in those days, but it was tune in to Letterman tonight for my ten, top ten list. That was Donald and Trump. First. I'm gonna I'm gonna guess just as a sideline, since you're from New York, you must have known President you must have known President Trump for years, given well, your I, your work in the art community and museums and all that. So I met Trump a couple of times um, when I worked for Governor Mario Cuomo. Mario Cuomo used to encourage Trump to bid for projects in New York State because it would drive the mayor of New York, Ed Koch, crazy <laughs> that the governor was considering him. So there was a big uh, project for a football stadium uh, the, for the New York Jets uh, on the west side of Manhattan, which was totally impractical. It's now the site of this mega city within the city called Hudson Yards to be built over railroad tracks. Hmm. And Trump got into it and he, he, he got NBC to commit to move Rockefeller Center or to abandon Rockefeller Center and move to this new thing. And the mayor went crazy. So I did go to a couple of meetings with him. And then in my days at the Met, he and two of his wives uh, would come every year to the Costume Institute Gala, the famous party of the year, which was the biggest social and red carpet event and he was always scowling like this whether he was with ivana or his marla his second mm -hmm. wife he did not want to be there his late brother his brother who just died loved it he was there loved going but not donald so yeah i met him but i i've met i've been lucky enough to meet a few presidents and 
I guess he's one of them now. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest is author, historian, and uh, friend of presidents, Harold Holzer. I said I met them. I didn't say I was a friend. <laughs> Maybe one a little bit. but Going back, you mentioned a founding yeah. father, and I want to bring up no discussion about presidents and the media and the press is uh, complete without mentioning John Adams and the Sedition Act. Is that, in your view, the most pernicious piece of actual legislation aimed at not only the press, but it affected the press. Yes. Um, Lincoln's acts, however questionable, and you know the Supreme Court did decide post facto that he was not entitled to shut down newspapers on military authority as long as there were civil courts operating. But he was dead by then, so it was, and the war was over. It was, I think, just a a judicial expression with no teeth. But Adams actual and his administration actually defied the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights said Congress shall make no laws that restrict freedom of the press. And Congress passed the sedition law, which made it a federal crime to ridicule the president of the United States. Adams signed it and just lustily enforced it, directed his attorney general, does this sound familiar, to go after people? directed his attorney general to prosecute journalists who attacked the Federalists. Now think of it, the courts of the Adams period, federal court, was 100% Federalist appointed, either by George Washington or John Adams. There was no dissenting on the court. So he was ruling almost monarchically. And there were at least 17 major show trials following which editors were fined and imprisoned. Um, for criticizing John Adams. And that was the worst of the legislative, legislatively authorized crackdowns. But then you switch to the Espionage Act of 1918, engineered by Woodrow Wilson and cited as recently as Barack Obama's crackdown on two reporters, um, unfortunately with very similar names. It made writing about them kind of confusing. James Risen and James Rosen. They were wiretapped. Their families were wiretapped under the uh, under a you know a 75 year old law that permits a president in times of national emergency to restrict the free flow of journalism. It seems that the rise of the press and the antagonism somewhat mirrored the rise of political parties and and the heating up of the rhetoric in the country in the early to mid 19th century. Papers became more partisan. Their words became tougher. The insults became more biting. And that just seems to be what was happening in the country. Certainly was happening in Congress. I don't have to tell you about uh, Bully Brooks or a lot of the other incidents that happened uh, in the country at the time. Does the press mirror the mood of the country or is there some other relationship well it's a it's a chicken and egg isn't it does the press seed the resentments or does it report the resentments that exist it's i would say that by the uh the time that slavery became the big issue in the country say from 1854 till 1863 the press was firing up the country and the press was not just partisan by philosophy it the 
major major press operations were basically owned and operated by political parties or vice versa. Take the case of the New York Times um, in its original incarnation before the Ox family bought it in the 1890s. It was a, announced in its prospectus, we will be a Republican newspaper opposed to slavery. Um, we will support Republicans. They said that in the circular they gave, they put under people's doorways in Manhattan. But more to the point, in 1864, the year Abraham Lincoln ran for re-election, the editor, founding editor of the New York Times, Henry Raymond, served as the editor of the New York Times, the chairman of the Republican National Committee, and a, a Republican candidate for Congress in Manhattan, which he won, by the way, um, all in the same year. Plus, he wrote a book of, about Lincoln. So he was also the equivalent of David Axelrod doing the, doing the media. <laughs> That's four jobs in one cycle. And no, no one said this is not you know, allowed. This is a conflict of interest. This was the culture. But it's hard to say whether, I know I, I've skirted the basic question. Who, who made, it, who made the, the press hot and who made the country uh, as hot as it was and up to the point of, of secession? The newspapers helped. But the situation was there. Um, I don't think it would have been as widespread without mass communications as mass communications was could be described then. So I think they're feeding off each other at this point. And people got more involved. There was more interest. The fight was so proximate. It was so heated. I mean, it's like it's like what, watching or reading about a boxing match. You, you can't wait. Uh, one of the things that we assume the Civil War was inevitable. I don't know whether it was or wasn't, but the country seemed to take on what, what did Lincoln say? The tug has to come right. as well come now that there that seemed to me that the, and I'm not blaming the media, but the press fed into that. Like, let's just get it over with yeah, well, the press. I mean, the press believed in its advocacy, the democratic press, the Republican press, a little more um, complicated because there was also a Southern press and a Northern press. And people were also reading the London Illustrated News, which was criticizing everything American. So, <laughs> but but it's not only like watching a boxing match, it's kind of like watching, trying to think, you know, homies um, who are baseball announcers. If you if you ever get to watch a, a, a Yankees Red Sox game, I'm sorry if I'm leaving out an Indiana. I once saw a baseball game in Indiana, by the way, the Fort Wayne Tin caps or tin hats minor league i think it's a hmm. uh, a b b level farm team anyway oh, oh because of the lincoln the uh, uh lincoln national had right, an amazing right. collection of lincoln uh, they did and now it's at the allen county library when you go to speak there in the days when you went anywhere they put you up at a hotel whose best rooms overlook a ballpark not close enough that a home run could hit your window but close enough you could, that you could actually watch the game and smell the game and hear the cheers and the PA announcer. But, um, you know, if you listen to a Yankees announcer announce a game or a Red Sox announcer, you get a different vibe from what's going on. And if you read the Democratic or Republican press in the 1850s, you got that same uh, sense of biased reporting, but, you know, happily biased, uh, the way a ball game is called now, obviously more serious consequentially. But there's a, one of my favorite examples was the reporting of the first Lincoln-Douglas debate in Ottawa, Illinois, 
1858, the, the Republican press reported that after he had concluded, Lincoln was carried off in triumph by his supporters from the stage. The Democratic press said, after Lincoln's terrible performance, his supporters had to carry him off the stage. So, <laughs> Isn't is that the deba- is that the debate where the Republican? Oh, it might not have been the press where it said that Stephen Douglas uh, drools the saliva of incipient madness. Could be, but I don't remember. I should remember, but it was certainly not Lincoln's finest hour. By the way, in the debates, it might have been. He was pretty timid. It might have been his worst performance, and his supporters from the newspapers openly wrote him and said, you've got to be more, uh, you know, charge. You've got to charge. So his second debate was much stronger and much more aggressive. So the whole notion, in your view, of people, you know, these days, if if you're a Republican or you support Trump, you only watch Fox News. And if you're not a Republican and you hate Trump, you watch MSNBC. And there's people who, who hunt around from A to B or other options. But that whole notion of you only people now only read what they want to read that agrees with them. That's historically inaccurate. And it's been true that people sought out the organs and the writings of people who agree with their views for over a hundred years easily. It just makes you wonder how elections were ever won. What is that middle ground that is swayable? And that's really what it always comes down to in American politics and in American elections. If you if you believe the polls uh, that were printed on the day where we're taping, only five or six percent of Americans are genuinely undecided about the Trump-Biden race. So the candidates and the parties are now going to spend about three hundred million dollars trying to get those five percent to lean a little harder or and participate. I mean, they'll spend it on turnout as well. But I think that was probably that's always been the case. The, the only great realignment that I see happening in politics was Franklin Roosevelt's, well, it's not the only one, but it's an interesting one, was Franklin Roosevelt's brilliant effort. Um, uh, and he did this in part through the black press, which is a whole separate story in, in this book or any book about 19th century and 20th century journalism, is getting the black vote to change from its longstanding allegiance to the party of Lincoln to the Democratic Party. And, you know, it, it, it was a fairly recent phenomenon. The black vote in 1932 in the midst of a depression that arguably hit people of color harder than white people. Um, I say arguably because there are plenty of poor white people too in the depression. But the black vote was still Republican. It was for Herbert Hoover. And Roosevelt worked his tail off as did his um, African-American supporters to move the vote in 1936. And the black vote finally went for Roosevelt in 1936. And think of how that, that's in a period when the white Southern vote is pro-democratic exclusively, but also anti-African-American advancement. So that was a huge realignment and that was achieved largely through journalism. And, but the old fashioned way, weekly newspapers, in fact, one of the reasons why there was no black journalist allowed at FDR's news conferences for his first 11 years as president, well, there were two reasons. One is that his press secretary was a descendant of General Jubal Early. I think oh, that's... <laughs> and then the second reason is that he argued, Stephen Early did, that 
We only we don't have room in this off you know in the Oval Office for a lo- every reporter who wants to come in. So we're restricting it to daily newspapers. The black press operated the old-fashioned way in weekly newspapers, and um, they finally broke that artificial ban by getting a wire service guy in there. But um, uh, but it's astonishing that the weekly press was still as influential as it was with people of color in, until, you know, in the night, well, really until uh, the end of the 20th century the, and maybe even today. Our own Indianapolis recorder here, which does terrific, terrific work. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is Harold Holzer, author, historian, and a very kind man for coming on the podcast. We're very grateful. Uh, I'm going to read a quote and then ask a question. Okay. Quote, the cheek of, you're going to start laughing as soon as I start saying this. The cheek of every American must tinge with shame. Am I close? You're pretty, (laughs) you want to keep going? No, I can't remember. (laughs) The cheek of every American must tingle with shame. Tingle, I knew it was T-I-N-G. Okay, (laughs) go ahead. Must tingle with shame as he reads the silly, flat, dishwatery utterances of a man who has to be pointed out to intelligent foreigners as the president of the United States. That is what the partisan Democrat Chicago Times wrote about Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Well, um, obviously they didn't get it right. And the Democratic (laughs) papers, um, as my friend Gabor Borat pointed out in his great book, uh, Gettysburg Gospel, the Democratic press believed that Lincoln had used that occasion to launch his reelection campaign because presidents didn't give public speeches. It's not that the speech is political, just, you know, read it. It's elegiac. It's a, it's a poem, but just the fact that he was appearing at a a grave uh, site of soldiers, which should be a lesson to other presidents, not a bad thing to visit and pay tribute to the war dead, but we'll just leave the obvious comparisons alone. Um, that was considered political. And uh, in their defense or in explanation, only a few months before they wrote that, Chicago Times also, uh, well, I won't give the, the, the lead story, lead in story, but a few months before that, Lincoln's army had shut down the Chicago Times and arrested its editor, Wilbur Story. Shut it down, why? For supporting an Ohio congressman who had suggested that young men the draft, Clement Laird Vallandigham. Mm-hmm. So Lincoln had shut down the Chicago Times. Why wouldn't they be ticked mm-hmm. off at Lincoln? This was a war. It was a war of the press as well as a war of bullets and a war of words in every way. And Well, the question I wanted to ask is, and maybe you can answer it about Lincoln, but others is, uh, I've worked for elected officials and, and party folks. Me too. And uh, they could be pretty thin-skinned. So how much, and, and which you can understand, right? If they're, con- of course, they love the adulation, right? It's it's Washington, right? He was spent his whole career starting, you know, in 1770, 
six when he was appointed commander in chief and he's just the father of the country and you only say great things about him he was elected twice unanimously to the presidency of the united states and he's got some pipsqueak in the state department you know writing terrible things about him he just wasn't used to it these presidents they're surrounded by people who serve them who soothe them and hopefully give them some straight talk but you know standing up to the president of the united states has got to be tough and in some cases that's the role of the press secretary. So you've got a thin skinned, maybe who's used to being complimented elected official. You've got a press secretary who has to establish good working relationships on and off the record with the media. Who's made that sort of mix work the best. I'm thinking John F. Kennedy. I'm thinking Ronald Reagan. Are there others? Well, we're talking about presidents or press secretaries. Cause I, have never uh, worked for a public official who quite liked the fact that a press secretary has to establish relationships with the press. There is a tension. Are you loyal to, well, of course you're loyal to the elected official. If you're not comfortable representing that person, you shouldn't be working for him or her. So I only worked for two really and loved them. Although they were, you know, in his, each way was not tolerant of criticism. But um, one, Mario Cuomo had his own relationships with the press, so he would work his own early morning calls and criticism. So he was, it was complicated. But um, who was the best at that? Well, um, Kennedy was great at it because he still palled around with journalists he had known for years when he was president. And they winked uh, at his extramarital affairs. They turned the other way if they knew that he was taking, a, you know, uppers to get through the day and downers to go to sleep and God knows what else in his, in his cocktail of, of medications for his back. Um, um, but he also socialized with them and had a really perfect press secretary in Pierre Salinger, who was not an insider. So was free to develop relationships with the press and a routine of briefings that they could depend on. Uh, in terms of presidents, I think most of them are thin-skinned. I mean, I think Reagan was thin-skinned. He just had a terrifically professional operation. He didn't like being criticized when criticism came to him over, you know, the Bitburg Cemetery uh, uh, problem or uh, a problem of his own making or Iran-Contra. He was upset, but he was such a, a disciplined person probably from his days as an actor and also his days writing commentary for GE, where he knew how to do a one minute message brilliantly as, as well as any uh, congressman knows how to do a one minute message. He stayed on message and pretended he didn't hear uh, <laughs> questions or looked at his watch. So he did pantomime too, to avoid tough questions. So he was, he was, he was terrific at it. Absolutely. I don't know if anybody's been as good, at that kind of deflection and humor since Reagan. I mean, Obama was pretty good, but Obama did not have good relations with the press corps. He just had a terrific presence on television and uh, uh, he, was, he was a terrific communicator and eloquent as anything. But in terms of the working press, they thought he was secretive and uh, combative and paid no attention to them because he was switching over to the... Uh, communications platforms that he could control 
like the White House website, like his own Twitter feed eventually. And we all we should keep in mind that Donald Trump, for all of his genius at communicating on Twitter, does not have the largest Twitter account in Twitter world. That distinction, I'm sure it galls him, belongs to Barack Obama. He has the most of anyone in the world. Do you think the press, and it was said tongue in cheek, right? But those of us who maybe vote Republican or have worked for Republican officials who think that the media is um, not philosophically aligned with us on most things. Do you think the media took it as a, as a condescending slap when, when Barack Obama said at that dinner, I forget if it was the press dinner or whatever, most of you in here covered me, all of you in here voted for me or something like that, where he acknowledged the obvious that he received, you know, this, this, you know, almost uh, hagiographical coverage in the 2008 campaign. I mean, is, do you think the media is aware of that sort of thing and tries to compensate one way or the other? Well, I think there is something to the press honeymoon theory, uh, at least until President Trump, because he came in with such feuding going on with the, with journalists. And that was actually part of his message was that journalism is not to be relied on. Now, I think the Gridiron Club and the National Press Club events are just a hoot for journalists. I don't think they minded that. The only person I know who really, there are two people, there's some great stories about it. Roosevelt once infuriated a, uh, uh, a famous columnist whose name I'm forgetting by complaining about something uh, and, and nobody understood why he was being so tough and so direct. And then it dawned on them that he was reading ver- verbatim. Who was the famous? Oh, Mencken, H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken. reading a Mencken column. And as he left the event, Mencken turned to his table mates and said, I'll get him if it's the last thing I do, because he had been made fun of. <laughs> most, of them, most of them are jolly affairs. And I, the only other person I know who didn't like being teased at, at a national press club was Donald Trump. When uh, and I think Obama had every right to be to make jokes at Trump's expense on the subject of birtherism, because that was a pretty racist, uh, uh, in, you know, trope. And he said something about uh, Roswell, New Mexico, was his next campaign, and Trump did not find it amusing. But the journalists yeah. don't care. They've had so much to drink at this event that they barely they have to listen to the tapes. <laughs> two days after the hangover, get a, the idea of what happened there. Well, it, it, and it's not the point of the podcast to go into what is what a lot of us on this side believe is pretty uh, rampant and undisguised uh, media bias. But do Republicans, do Republican presidents complain about that along with their other complaints about how they're sure. treated? Absolutely. Republican presidents do. And I've spoken... You know, I just use my personal experiences, which are just reflective of my, you know, wonderful opportunities to talk to presidents. But the two presidents with whom I've discussed this, Bill Clinton and uh, George W. Bush, were absolutely convinced that the press was out to get them. One a Democrat, one a Republican. Uh, I remember Bush saying to me, he asked me the first time I met him, he said, like, have you read any good books lately? And I thought this is sort of interesting because I believed the, the, the reigning caricature that Bush didn't read. He's a voracious history reader. Voracious history reader. Well, I think his wife was influential. She said, you have to read a book a week. 
And he said, I said, yeah, I read uh, the most recent book I read was the biography of John Adams by David McCullough. And Bush said, oh, I read that. I think McCullough was too easy on Adams about the Alien and Sedition Act. I think he gave him a pass. He said, you know, I've been mad at the New York Times, but I've never tried to shut them down. And then, <laughs> and then he winked at me. As you may remember, he liked to wink. He winked and he said, not that I wouldn't like to. <laughs> so, yes, that's his way of complaining. And Clinton, you know, now says, and I, I, he's the only president I interviewed for my book, that he believes the press was only trying to do its job. But does he believe that it had any right to dwell on Travelgate and um, Vincent Foster? No, that outrages him and thinks that was just the gotcha press, the leftover from the Nixon years. So the answer is they all have gripes. Some of them are real. Some of them are imagined, um, Republican and Democrat. And they all have fairly good reasons because unfortunately, since the Nixon era, the press has developed kind of a gotcha mentality. And I, you know, we could argue about whether the press is biased politically. You know who the press is biased toward? The presidents who give them the most access and the least trouble. Somebody should learn that one day. <coughs> we, we can't do any, we cannot have any sort of discussion about the media and the press, or excuse me, the president, the presidency, without mentioning Richard Nixon, uh, who, if, if you have a chance, uh, those of you who are listening, to look up an HBO special about the Nixon tapes, all it is is Nixon's tapes. Yeah. And there's some, there's some written commentary, but, but the only voice you hear are Nixon and the people in the administration. <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually quite uh, apparent that there were three or four people who knew uh, they were, there was a White House taping system, Haldeman, Nixon, um, I think um, the Butterfield, who eventually had to cop to it at the Watergate committee and then uh, one other, but like Kissinger didn't know all these people didn't know that their conversations are being taped. And in these conversations, Nixon is just unvarnished about his hatred of the media. And it was kind of two scorpions in a bottle. Clearly they hated each other. Uh, so one Nixon and his, and that relationship I'm getting the sense you're saying that 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 permeates to today. So that's a and B. How important is it? Because I'm thinking of Nixon and Dan Rather. How important is it for the president to have a foil in the media, whether that's Nixon and oh, that's, Dan Rather? That's a great question. Or, I, mean, I think with Nixon, yeah, it's a great, great question. Um, yeah, it's useful for them to have a foil. Nixon had one. I mean, Dan Rather um, told me that he thinks that's a mistake. That he made a mistake in speaking back to Nixon on his level. But John Avalon does it today for CNN. He, he does He tries to, to, he doesn't mind fighting with Trump during press conferences. I mean, we've descended in terms of decorum at these events. So um, it was still a remarkable thing. I remember watching that press conference where Nixon said, are you running for something? And mm -hmm. rather said, no, sir, are you? But this was a press conference that was in a, taking place in a basketball arena with a crowd of people. So that was a, an unusual event. I think the foil question is great. I think it can be helpful. But again, what's really helpful is to develop an open um, relationship and a, a one of where the briefings are trusted again. Um, you know, the best answer a journal, a press, you know this as a, someone who represented 
elected officials, a really good answer is, I don't know, I'll get back to you. Nobody does that anymore. They'd rather fight and be combative and be advocates rather than the role that a press secretary used to play, at least when I was a press secretary, which is getting the information, maybe arguing for your boss. You asked another question about Nixon that I've now forgotten, but he was, you know why the press resented Nixon originally? Well, not only because of his history of hating the press, back when he was running for Congress, was prosecuting or persecuting Alger Hiss, depending on your point of view, he always hated the press. The Checkers episode, the fact that he was accused of having a slush fund to send out Christmas cards. Do you know how innocent that sounds today? <laughs> but so he was always at war with the press. The, the What emboldened the press was not that they hated Nixon, but that they helped bring him down. That two journalists could make a, to change the a landslide election decision and, and, and make it null and void based on their anonymously sourced reporting and could be then get 50 lucrative book deals, become multimillionaires, mm-hmm. marry beautiful women, and be portrayed in the movies by Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford. Everybody, I think, has been trying to do that since. And, you know, it, it, lightning doesn't strike twice, especially in today's much more diffuse media world. There is no Woodward and Bernstein writing a series of stories anymore. No one has the focus for it. Let's talk very quickly in the few minutes we have left. I want to ask you about, uh, I was actually in Gettysburg at the Lincoln Forum. I met you, I believe. Uh, That was the year that Steven Spielberg was there. Yes, at the cemetery, right. That's right. And so you, uh, when I've told folks that I was going to talk to you and mentioned that you uh, were involved with the movie Lincoln, Please tell us a little bit about that experience because it's a beautiful movie, unbelievably well done. Uh, It captures the mood, I think, extremely well for that time period. It was a brilliant idea to focus on the fight for the 13th Amendment as opposed to some sprawling biopic. How did you become involved? And just talk a little bit about what that movie means to you. Well, I think it's the best movie about Lincoln. That and Gloria, the best movies about the Civil War maybe a little bit of Red Badge of Courage, which I just happened to like a lot. Um, how did I get involved? I'm not even sure how I, oh, I got a call one day from Tony Kushner, the famous playwright, um, didn't know him. Um, maybe Doris Kearns Goodwin set us up. And that makes more sense. I should really know this, right? But I'm not b- big into autobiography. But So Kushner came over to visit me at the Metropolitan Museum and asked me uh, if I would be an advisor and um, a principal advisor, which, so he gave me my own copy of the script with my name stamped on all the pages so I couldn't distribute it anywhere. And my job was to look at the, I wish I had it here to show it to you, but I moved it to my New York City apartment. Got a lot of little buck slips and questions in it. And um, my, here is my big movie, my one and only big movie deal. If I did this, I would be flown to Richmond put up in the Jefferson, the beautiful Jefferson Hotel with its alleged Gone with the Wind movie set staircase. And um, I would be invited on set to watch the few days of filming, uh, first class all the way. And uh, I get a call from um, Tony Kushner one day and he said, um, I'm sorry, but uh, uh, we have to renege, you can't come. Daniel Day-Lewis doesn't want 
anyone else to visit the set. He doesn't want any modern people. I thought maybe there was a Jewish quota and maybe Kushner <laughs> and Spielberg were the, like broke the bank on that. But I never got, my deal was never, uh, never consummated. So it was a labor of love. And working with uh, Kushner and getting to know Spielberg a little bit, Kushner is one of the most brilliant, brilliant people mm-hmm. I've ever met. Not to mention a, a just brilliant writer and did things that historians have never done. Um, not fiction, but to real things. I, he's just amazing. And to just have been exposed to a, a year of being of being in his company and his, you know, his email chain was a was a big thrill. And, and I, did you have to step in and and say, okay, look, this isn't accurate. You, this isn't what happened. This is what happened. Yeah, but some and sometimes it made a difference, and sometimes they said we don't care. Um, the you know I've told this in in articles uh, and in interviews, but the the climactic uh, scene of the simple matter of the roll call of Congress. In the movie, they call the states alphabetically. How does uh, I'm trying to think of a state that ends with A that didn't that starts with A that didn't secede? But can, how does Connecticut vote? There, I got mm-hmm. to see, and Connecticut votes five for the amendment and one against. And I said to Tony Kushner, "You know, you're confusing the House roll call with a, a, a political convention. Remember those where the states are mm-hmm. called to ask how they? We just saw it in real in." Uh, you know, in the two conventions on television. And he, Tony Kushner literally sank out of a sofa in my office onto the floor. He said, oh, I, I, didn't, I can't believe I made that mistake. I said, yeah, it's done alphabetically by person. He said, are you sure? I said, yes, I work for a member of Congress whose name started with AB. And she was always the second person called because she was ABZ. And there was a congressman. Ella named, Abzug. Ella Abzug. Mm-hmm. And there was a congressman named James Aberesk, A B O. And he was always first. And it really annoyed her. That <laughs> even with a name like A B Z, her husband's name, she wasn't first. Anyway, so he one day he calls me from the set and says, um, I have to tell you, I told Stephen your idea and he doesn't like it. And I said, Tony, it's not an idea. I'm just telling you how it happened. And I just don't want you to get bitten in, I, you know, I don't want to be graphic. I don't want you to get, you know, criticized for this when it's so easily avoidable. No, it's not dramatic enough. Anyway, during the run-up to the Oscars, Maureen Dowd wrote a column because a congressman from Connecticut complained about the way the vote was portrayed, saying Connecticut was unanimous for the amendment. And if it hadn't been state by state, Nobody would have noticed this the way it was portrayed. And he demanded that the DVDs, which Spielberg had so generously donated to every high school in the country, be withdrawn or they had to be reshot. Anyway, Maureen Dowd of the New York Times wrote a column about how he had messed this up. And I, I still remember that we were together when he was interviewed by Maureen Dowd for his response. We were at the Abraham Lincoln Bookshop in Chicago for an event. Oh, great bookshop. Great great bookshop. bookshop. He was so upset. And his quote to Maureen Dowd was, if I had listened to Harold Holzer, I wouldn't be in this trouble. (laughs) What he should have said is that Argo, which won best screenplay for that year, was also made up. There was no, if you remember that movie, there was no chase down the runway. Yeah, there's no confrontation at the end. They just... And no, they made that up. So it's, anyway, that's my story about 
some things they listened to. One big thing I wish they'd listened to, but they didn't. Do you have time to do the five questions? Yeah, I'm dying to hear the five questions. All right. Okay. So uh, you we, say I'm going to regret it, but I want. Well, it just they're going to be tough as hell for you. A couple of them are. They are for all the historians. I don't know if you're being sarcastic on. No, that. not at all. The the Heidlers struggled, and um, um, the, uh, the who's the the historian? He he just he wrote the book. One of the Pulitzer we had him on about the Scopes Monkey Trial. Okay, but remember, as an old press secretary, if I don't know, I'm just going to say I'll check and call you back. <laughs> These are all opinion questions. Okay, oh, the five questions opinions with... Opinions I can always do. Well, a couple are more factual, but they'll be easy for you. We're talking with Harold Holzer about the five questions. Number one, what was your first job? Uh, is that part-time or, or full-time? My first job where I made money was working as a roofer for my father's roofing company in the summer. Uh, I can't believe what a wreck I am having lifted tar paper <laughs> and roofing paper and cans of tar onto one floor because built elevators and one floor below the roof. That was my first job. But my first full-time job out of college was as a, a cub reporter for a now defunct weekly newspaper called the Manhattan Tribune. The author I was thinking of, the historian, was Edward Larson. He was, he was, this was tough for him. So we'll keep going. Number he two. Didn't know his, he didn't know his first job? Okay. Well, just, you'll understand when I get to three, four, and five. Number two, what was your first concert? Um, Frank Sinatra, Italian-American Equality Night at the old Madison Square Garden in 1969. I didn't see the Beatles at Chase Stadium. So I went, I skipped right to Frank Sinatra. I think that was the first concert. We have not had a Frank Sinatra answer in our, about well, our You're, you're obviously talking to the wrong age group. Well, we've talked to a lot of boomers and heard a lot of Peter, Paul, and Mary and Simon and Garfunkel. And um, well, I, uh, I know, you know Mitch, them. I Mitch knew Daniels. Them a little bit. I knew them a little bit, so I didn't have to go to their concert. <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, uh, Mitch Daniels, you know, who's the president of Purdue University, a huge uh, history guy, former governor, former yeah, Reagan aide. And Blue Gray. Yeah. yeah, he came on the podcast and uh, his the first concert was uh, Love and Spoonful and the Association. Oh, I know who they are. <laughs> and I know who Mitch Daniels is. So that's a trifecta right there. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? <clears throat> yeah, these are tough uh, questions. Um, Scoop by Evelyn Waugh, because it's a story about how reporters work as foreign correspondents and because it's hysterically funny. I think everybody needs a good laugh now. So that would be my suggestion of the day. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? I'm going to tell you my story. Can I expand on it a little bit? Yes, sir. I, I, I'll say exactly. So uh, the answer is the Cooper Union address. I want I would like to hear Lincoln. So I was I was lecturing at a private school in Manhattan a few years ago and the kids got to ask questions and then the parents got to ask questions. So a man stood up and the kids are in the front man stood up in the back and said, if you could witness any speech of Abraham Lincoln's, which would you like to witness? And I looked and I realized it was Jerry Seinfeld who was asking the question. <laughs> so I said, the Cooper Union address. And he said, 
not the Gettysburg Address. And I said, not that there's anything wrong with that. So I did a Seinfeld line, and he was not happy. He was, I remember he did, <laughs> comedians don't laugh at other people. I've noticed that over the years. Anyway, I said, yeah, the Cooper Union just, I don't want to go to Gettysburg and stand up for hours to hear him speak for two and a half minutes. I want to have a nice plush velvet chair that swings around and I could sit there for two hours and listen to Abraham Lincoln. So that would be my answer. If it's good enough for Seinfeld, it should be good enough for you. And if you can get Jerry on the podcast, let us know. My- yeah, I don't think he was too happy with me. So <laughs> I don't think it's a relationship that continued. The last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? So this would be someone with whom I haven't had a two-hour meeting, right? Correct. Living today. Um, that's a really good question. Boy, these are hard. Um, so it, <laughs> I hope you I hope you edit some of the pauses out of this. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know what, Mr. Holzer, to be honest with you, that's why we don't give them ahead of time. People are like, can we know the five questions? I'm like, no, just listen to one of my podcasts and you'll get it. But I want to hear people think it through because some of these questions, especially for someone like you, a historian, you know, it's tough to kind of think, well, gee, do I want to see Lincoln and Grant at Appomattox? Do I want to see, you know, any yeah. other Civil War thing? Yeah. Lincoln and Grant at Appomattox is my choice. To see those two titans together would be. But they, you mean Lee and Grant? I hope Lee and Grant. Forgive me. That's right. Yeah. Grant and Lee. Grant and Lee at Appomattox. Then put Lincoln in there to screw it up by telling <laughs> funny stories until Lee gets impatient and forget it. I'm not. Got, I'm not staying here. He okay. got impatient with Grant. Yeah, he did. He did get impatient with Grant. Let's turn to business. So I will say, um, I'll say President Obama, because of all the recent presidents. All I ever got was two handshakes and never got to talk too much. And I would like to talk to him about uh, his post-presidency and about Lincoln, because he's he spent more time speaking about Abraham Lincoln than any other president. Uh, but I was never included in those historians' dinners he had at the White House, although some of my friends have, and I'm envious. So I'd like to have a recap and do one of the dinners with Obama. I'm sure I'd be very disappointed, but I feel left out. Well, he's probably the most popular choice of really that question. The most popular answer. Yeah. I'd, I mean, I'd kill to sit down with him for two hours and talk to him about history and sports and various things. He's obviously an yeah, engaging fellow. The sports would all be about Chicago. So that would be a bore for me. Well, my, my dolphins were the team that beat the bears to make him go 18 and one in 1985. And so, you know, I'd have to bring that up and he'd probably kick me out and I'd be okay with it. <laughs> You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel, Grand Hall, and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Harold Holzer, author of the new book, best-selling, great reviews. The book is called The Presidents Versus the Press, The Endless Battle Between the White House and the Media, From the Founding Fathers to Fake News. 
thank you, sir, so much. It was absolute honor. I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you. And Ruth, I know you're listening. We love you. Hope you're feeling well. And thank you so much for helping make this interview happen. Ditto. Thank you, Ruth. And thank you. It was, it was great fun to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.